Dan Bartlett found himself in many incredible situations throughout his life. Most of the people in the room with me could be my parents, could be right. my parents, if not right. older. And I'm like, what the heck am I doing in yeah. here? And, <laughs> and so there was, you know, but wow. the old adage of fake it till you make it, there was right. probably some of that going on. Welcome back to Dan Bartlett's story on Kaval. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Kelly Archibald, and I'd like to welcome you to Kaval the Podcast your source of inspiration, empowerment, and profound insights into the art of Kavah. Now you might be wondering, what is Kavah? It hails from Hebrew, and it embodies the concept of waiting with eager anticipation and hopeful expectancy. In a world that constantly seems to rush us, Kavah the podcast invites you to pause, to embrace the beauty of anticipation, and to explore the profound wisdom found in waiting. In a world where every child deserves love, care, and a place to call home, there's a beacon of hope called Kaval the Storehouse. Kaval the Storehouse goes beyond walls. It is more than just a store. It's a lifeline for children in foster care. Step into Kaval and you'll find a world of compassion, dedication, and support. Every donation you make at Kava helps fund essential resources and programs. From appropriate clothing to vital services, Kava is there every step of the way, ensuring no child is left behind. Kava, where every child's dream is nurtured, where hope is restored, and futures are shaped. Join us in making a lasting difference. Donate to Kava today. That's Q-A-V-A-H, the storehouse because together we can empower these children, offer hope in the waiting, and give them essential resources they deserve. Kava, the store that changes lives. The accounts shared on this podcast, including this episode, reflect the guests' thoughtful recollections and opinions of experiences perceived and occurring over many years, including childhood memories which may be fallible and limited by perspective and trauma. Persons may have different memories regarding certain events. What did it feel like to be on Air Force One on September 11th? Oh, gosh. Um, it's hard to describe the range of emotions because... Um, you got to remember, this happened very early in President Bush's right. tenure, so yes. our familiarity with being in the office itself was still relatively new. We were just getting used to the confines in which we were working and where to park, right. where, where's the bathroom, where's this, and right. particularly travel. And um, I was spot filling for my boss at the time. Karen Hughes was my boss. She was the okay. communications director, and I was deputy communications director at the time, but she had an event come up uh in dc and she's like and we oftentimes would alternate travel and this was a uh an event in florida to talk about education and president bush was trying to push through some education reform mm -hmm. forms in congress and we were down there to, to talk about that and obviously the world changed that morning like it did for everyone i think probably what was the most surreal part of it was the fact this inability or this challenge of separating the personal from the professional mm. and always like there's a reason why the military and police and 
all those trained so much because when an emergency happens or a crisis happens, right. it becomes just automatic. Right. It's like, and, and we're on the plane and, you know, the plane is operated by the United States Air Force, the military personnel around him, um, Secret Service, all these people have been trained, maybe not for this specific moment, this right. was an unprecedented moment, but they're trained. And to see the, the contrast of the quote unquote civilians like myself who were kind of running around with like chickens with their heads cut <laughs> off compared to mm. the calmness and right. the professionalism of um of the Secret Service and others was was something that always sticks out to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was hard for us not to be distracted by you know, my wife was back in Washington, DC. Right. The plane had hit the Pentagon. Right. So your mind is distracted by those things and what's going to happen to us. And, you know, at the same time, when, uh, um, as, uh, you know, we're in the, in the aircraft, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of what is often called the fog of war, a lot of misinformation. Mm. At one point there was a right. fear that, that air force one, uh, itself was a target. I do mm. remember, uh, vividly, um, the pilot, uh, Colonel Til- Tillman there, he's a Colonel in the air force. Um, informing the president that there was a 747 about a mile and a half off the back of our plane that is not communicating with us. And he said, we're, we're going to, we don't know if it's hostile, sir. And we ended up taking the plane out over the Gulf to see if it was falling. So there's a, you know, 60, 90 seconds of just eerie quietness on the plane where we don't know if whether we're about to be engaged. Wow. And they came back and said, no, it turned out, you know, turned out not to be the case, but you don't know that in those moments. And for the rest of the day, we had F-16s on our uh, wingtips following us. Just fascinating. And like I said, it's almost like looking back on it, like I'm remembering a movie that I, that I watched versus a movie that I was in. Right. Right. um, Well, it's kind of traumatic. I mean, you know, like we, our world changed that day. And so, and you're involved in that. And so like, your memories and emotions and all of that is it's based on kind of trauma and going, what in the world's going on? It, nothing we'd yeah. ever experienced. Yeah. And then it, it went on for us for a while too, because, you know, in, you know, there was still a palpable sense of fear and question about whether this was only a one-off event or whether there was going to right. be additional attacks. And right. there were several times in the white house where a plane would violate the airspace in Washington, DC. And we'd be in a meeting and the secret service would come flying in there and grab the president, a few of us and take us to the bunker underneath the white house. Mm. And so it was like, you know, those days right after, you know, it was like on pins and needles and yeah. the cumulative aspect, cumulative elements of, of that stress and those things, you don't appreciate it until much later right, right. Um, as you try to unpack all of it. Right. It's, uh, it, yeah, trauma is probably the right word. And, um, but at the same time, what a, what a, an extraordinary privilege to yeah. be involved in that and to be able to see firsthand the bravery of our yes. first responders I would like to commend you because I do think that the, you know, language creates culture. And I think the language that was used from that administration created such a culture in our, in our country 
of unity and um, just like, let's get it. You know, let's do this. Um, I It was so beautiful. And I know that you were a part of that. And so thank you for um, helping make us um, unified and, and not so afraid. It was, it was a wonderful thing. Yeah, it was. Um, I literally saw the transformation of a, of a, a young president into what I think, you know, history has been maybe a little harsh on him during his tenure, but I think history will continue to be much kinder to president Bush considering mm-hmm. the circumstances he mm-hmm. found himself in and yeah. the clarity he attempted to bring to what we faced, I think did help clarify that we have to be unafraid in calling evil evil. Right. And we have to, marshal all of us not just parts of the country into a fight like that and 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 at the time the the idea that the country would not be attacked again was naive people thought it was just going to be inevitable and president bush was very much of the mindset of you know we're going to play offense and we're going to this country is going to play offense and we're going to be confident in our approach and and knowing that we're still vulnerable but at the same time and, and try at the same time to to draw on our better angels. And I know as we sit here today and look at our politics of today, it, um, we could probably use a bit of that. I would agree with you. <laughs> and I think, you know, one of the reasons why I do this is because I believe that when you lean in and listen to someone, it's really hard to hate them. And no so, doubt about it. I have no um, political aspirations in do, doing this. I just want people to be able to know one another and to hear one another and maybe not hate each other so much. Um, it makes me sad <clears throat> that we've gotten to where we are these days. So um, it's a yep. different time. It's a different time. So um, you eventually... Um, your White House um, role ended, um, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know it did. Um, so what happened after that? So, yeah, I stayed. You know, I was, I believe, the longest continuous serving staffer to the president. I went to work wow. for him and literally right out of school, October 1993, all the way up to July of 2007. Wow. And okay. yeah, um, the average stay for a staffer in the West Wing of the White House is just over two years. And I stayed for seven. Wow. Um, had three kids during that time frame. Wow. And my wife was finally like, we got to get out of here. We got, you know, you told me two years, two or three <laughs> years the most. And, and obviously with, obviously with 9-11 right. and then we went, straight in re-election and right. these things that, you know, you, there's reasons why you stay. And As Dan moved forward in his career, he also moved his family back to Texas for a time. I did leave in the summer of 2007, just before his term was up mm-hmm. and ended up moving back to Texas and getting into um, a lot of the things that I did and learned was, was crisis management and dealing with high stakes political, public policy, and communications issues. And so that dovetailed into advising Fortune 500 companies on how they can 
do the same. And so I was running a, a consulting agency that had offices around the country, but I was doing it from Austin. Okay. Whereas where I met my wife and where uh, we both gone to school there. And, um, and so was doing that for, and I was CEO of that company. It was called public strategies. It okay. then merged into a bigger company called Helen Hilton strategies. And I was the, the CEO of the, of the U S operation. And so I was helping a lot of, of, uh, well, brand name companies in a lot of different sectors, financial services, energy, banking, Wow. manage their reputation and, and helping them deal with certain crises. During his time at the White House, Dan developed impressive problem-solving abilities that later proved invaluable in his business endeavors. He also possessed a keen knack for identifying opportunities, and it wasn't long before a significant one presented itself. And then about... Um, Gosh, it's been about eight and a half years now, almost God, we're, yeah, a little eight and a half years ago, uh, this little company called Walmart <laughs> reached out and, um, and they were really anxious to talk to me about coming in house to help them, um, manage their reputation among other things. And I had no real desire. I, you know, I had gone through Arkansas for work and for right. politics, but I'd never spent time there, but and I couldn't imagine having a conversation with my wife saying after moving her back to Texas that I was now oh. going to move her to Arkansas. But um, but I came up here and I met the people. And and even though it's the largest company in the world, it's it's an incredibly the humbling founding roots uh, mm. principles in which Sam Walton founded this company are still prevalent in the leadership. And I found it to be a, a really interesting opportunity as the world's largest company operating in 28 countries around the world, the largest private sector workforce. The only larger workforce in the world is the Chinese and U.S. armies. Wow. We have 2.3 million employees. Wow. Um, close to 600 billion in revenue. And we're a, a fabric of society. If, yes. like I tell people often, if there's something going on in the country, there's a good chance it's happening at a Walmart or a Walmart parking lot. Absolutely. Um, while at the same time, Retail is being transformed. Yes. A little company out there called Amazon, I think you probably yes. heard of. Yes. Um, and so Walmart's had to change itself and transform. And to be on the leadership team and to help steer this company through that, plus with a lot of kind of, uh, you know, divisive right. turmoil going on in our country, right. socially, economically, and otherwise, it's been a fascinating ride. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And actually, I've really grown fond of Northwest Arkansas. Um, it actually reminds me a lot of kind of Austin back 25, right. 30 years ago. Right. Um, there's a lot of implant. There's a lot of transplants here. A lot of kids. You know, the University of Arkansas is yes. chock full of Texans these days. Uh, yes. Uh, Little rock wall. That's what people call it. <laughs> the kids, yeah, they, exactly. because a lot of them are from Little Rock and a lot of them are from rock wall. So it's, it's so weird <laughs> how that happened. It really is. Well, yeah, it's, there's a lot of, but, um, they make it so hard to get into the universities in Texas these days. So right, right. I'm a tra I'm a Longhorn by heart and by yes. love and I always will be. But uh, yes. yeah, so it's um, we'll make our way ultimately back to, to Texas. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it's 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 been a fascinating, uh, particularly during the pandemic. Obviously, Walmart oh played a big goodness. role in huge in vaccinations and testing and all those different yes. things. So today dan lives out the values his mentor president george w bush modeled for him the three f's faith family and friends 
you're married and you have twins. I know that. How many children do you have? I have four boys. So I've been married um, almost 21 years. Um, or no, almost 22 years. Oof, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we got married in the 2000, uh, during a presidential election. I don't oh. recommend that to anybody. Okay, no. <laughs> um, and we have four boys. Like I said, I have twins that are seniors in high school. Um, I have a ninth grader, um, all boys. Okay. And wow. I have a fourth grader. Oh, wow. We just turned 10. And so I've got two 18, 15, uh, one who's 14, about to turn 15 next week or in two weeks and a 10 year old. So wow. not a dull moment for the Bartlett family. Not a dull moment. And your wife is this only girl. Does she have a girl dog or something? Three boy dogs to go with it. <laughs> Oh, you no. can't get away from it. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's uh, bless her. She's 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 a native way. Texan. She's from Houston, Texas. That's and awesome. uh, we didn't go to school together. She but she went we met in Austin and uh, she went to the University of Texas as well. That's awesome. So what gave you hope to continue um on in order to have success? What's something that gave you hope? Um you know, I was, you know, I'm one of those, I, there are people who are glass half full and glass half empty. Right. I'm going to be honest. I'm more on the, the half empty side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I look at, I, I'm one who goes to the, that side of it and gets, and I probably get motivated more out of fear of failure than yeah. success. I'm blessed to have a wife who is more half full in her perspective. And then also I've been, you know, I've also been, you know, to have a, boss and mentor as i had in george w bush mm-hmm. uh the fan i don't have to tell you about the fan the family is an extraordinary family right and i was really um uh, privileged to get to know his father very well mm-hmm. and many of his siblings but i um you know he was really guided and to this day is guided by what i would always call the three f's in his life his faith his family and his friends mm. and you know you get that if you get that ecosystem right, that orbit in your life right, yeah. everything else kind of takes care of itself. And yeah. so if you have that balance and and I, you know, through my life of having grown up where my parents didn't stay together, redouble my efforts to to be a good father and a good husband. Mm-hmm. I, I want my kids to to live, you know, be with both. And I know that's not always the case, but it, right. it's been something that is, you know motivated me and driven me to like i said i've had a career that's been extraordinary but it all is in supplement to trying to be just a good right dad and a good and a good husband and so i've um that's where my balance comes from yeah and but i do i probably would say i it's that fear of failure that Mm. that probably drove me more than anything else and this notion of like i really believe i mean for better part of the of the first part of my career i really thought somebody was ultimately going to come up and tap me on the shoulder and go uh we figured it out you're not supposed to be here <laughs> that imposter that, syndrome yeah exactly uh-huh. and so um that that probably that that probably drove me more than anything else <laughs> that's awesome so what would you like uh people to take away from your story i i think it is that well, I, you know, and I push my children and others 
to excel at everything they do right. that you, you don't have to be first in class. You don't have to be, um, have everything figured out at every minute in your life and that right. your moments kind of come. And like I said, you know, being kind of a late bloomer that I kind of describe myself as is not a knock it's everybody right. has their own path right. and just be ready to seize it when it comes and, yeah. and, and don't, you know, probably I didn't do enough of this, but um, expect that your those opportunities, those doors are supposed to open for you. And, and when they do kick them, kick through them. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've, um, I've kind of tried to, to stay positive. The other thing I would say is that, it's extraordinary how small the world is. And yeah. one of the things that struck me more than anything else was when um, I did get a chance to rise to the highest level in, in politics and work at the highest levels in government. And when I left government and when I left this and I was kind of like looking at all of my, um, my contacts and as I was trying to develop what my business was going to be and all that. And I had a lot of these, really extraordinary, you know, people who I knew in contacts. But what I found out later was the people who became more meaningful and creating opportunities for me later were people that I had very casual occurrences with people who I met mm. maybe once while I was in government. And they would say to me, like, I really appreciate the way you dealt with me. You didn't speak wow. down to me. You did do these. And it just were always reminded me is that People are always, you know, the littlest things can go the longest yes. ways and how you treat people regardless of where they are matters. And because yes. the world, it is a small world and you'll be shocked how many times these things circle back. And it's happened to me on, on if it had just happened once or twice, I would just chalk it up to being coincidence. It's happened to me dozens of times. Wow. And it's just a lesson to learn is that, you know, how you, how you conduct yourself with everyone, not just the important people right. really does have a lasting impact right. on in ways that you can't appreciate till later. Wow. So it's like your integrity. Absolutely. Wow. No doubt about it. Wow. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very busy, very important man. I, I thank you. Well, I don't know about that, but as I say, I've, um, I've, I'm probably beyond imposter pot, uh, status, but um <laughs> It's great to talk to somebody. It's great to talk to somebody from uh, from Rockwall, yeah. and uh, really, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Kaval the Podcast. Be sure to download episodes and subscribe to Kaval wherever you listen to podcasts, so you never miss an episode filled with inspiring stories and unwavering determination. If you'd like to become a sponsor have a story of hope that you'd like to share or know someone whose journey deserves to be heard, we invite you to reach out to us at kavalpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. Until next time, may your journey be filled with renewed hope and may you continue to find strength in the stories we share.